You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. U.S. equities advanced today, with the Nasdaq surging 1.4% as U.S. Treasury yields retreated. Meanwhile, a U.S. clinical trial validated the AstraZeneca vaccine, finding it to be 79% effective. And in other news, the Turkish lira crashed 14% as Turkish President Erdogan fired central bank chief Naji Abel. That's the news of the day. Now, with her analysis on gold, banks, and the dollar, here's Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome back to Real Vision. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Of course. So, Lynn, the last time you were on, uh, you laid out your thesis that rates were going to rise. Uh, you were very bullish on the reflationary names, uh, your, your energy stocks, your commodity stocks. That has all come to pass. But it's now my understanding that you're, it's not so much you're having doubts, but you're, you're pulling a little bit away from that reflation trade just because it's so crowded. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so it's often like if you look at, say, a, a control system, we have a big response, then you have a, a pullback in the other direction as it tries to find equilibrium. Uh, that's I'm kind of seeing that happen in the markets now. And so if you look, of course, back in 2020, we really overshot on all of the, the growth stock names, all of the, all of the kind of no-profit, hyper-growth things. Everybody, want, everybody piled into those at any price. Nobody wanted anything to do with the cyclicals, with the you know the more economically sensitive names. Uh, then you know, starting in the autumn when we got the vaccine announcements, and we started to see you know some of this policy response really start to kick in. Uh, everybody piled back into these uh, really oversold cyclical, cyclical stuff. And so we we've seen like small cap, we've seen energy stocks, we've seen uh, banks, all these uh, different things flying up to different uh, degrees in a very short amount of time. Uh, and so in many ways, I think some of those things might have overshot, maybe not to the same extent uh, that some of those uh, really growthy names overshot last year, uh, but we have come very, very far, very fast. So I, I've been scaling back some of my reflationary trades a little bit over the past uh, weeks, including, for example, selling uh, you know, the, the copper stocks that have done extraordinarily well uh, and, and just kind of uh, you know, looking back at, at some of the things that you know, haven't done very well in the past few months, like some of the growth stock names and things like that. Mm. Lynn, uh, I want to get into that. But but first, can you lay out your broad thesis, um, on your, your macro thesis about how you're thinking about growth um, and inflation? You know, we're reaching the point where expectations are for inflation are, are very high, perhaps 3 to 4%. But I understand you're making a point that uh, it actually might not be uh, such a big deal because it's comparing to, to the last year. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so if you look at base effects, right? So if you look at what CPI's done, let, let's say you, first you look at it in just not rate of change terms, just CPI, you'll see that there was a dip, uh, you know, back during the spring of last year, the April May time frame, when we were kind of in the heart of the job losses and things like that. Uh, and uh, so now going forward, uh, you know, we're uh, when we get to April and May, reported, you know, the months after May and June. Uh, we're going to have CPI prints that are most likely, uh, you know, uh, somewhat on the high side. You, probably, you know, there's a decent chance of having an over a three percent headline CPI print. Uh, that's because you're comparing it year over year uh, to the April and May uh, of last year, where we had that big dip. And 
so, so the market should understand this, but I, I see, you know, more often than not that, you know, a lot of people don't really focus on the base effects. And so, for example, a lot of people were surprised that February numbers uh, didn't come in super high, uh, but, you know, they, they had actually pretty strong base effects com to compare with back in 2020. Uh, and so now we're going to have the opposite thing. It starts a little bit, it, you know, in the March report, but really in April and May is where you have those super low base effects. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the how the bond market absorbs that uh, when we start to get some of these, you know, substantial uh, CPI prints. And the, you know, uh, Jerome Powell is already aware of this. And so, for example, uh, they've pointed out that we're going to have these base effects, that we're going to have these transient uh, headline numbers, and the Fed's narrative is to look past that, and we're going to see how they kind of navigate the market through that situation. Lynn, uh, I'm glad that you you mentioned the base effects. You've got this key chart of uh, the. 10-year treasury rate to the uh, consumer price index. And uh, one, thing, one thing I note is that the 10-year the treasury rate, the, the purple line, has been beneath the actual inflation rate for quite some time, meaning that real rates are actually negative. And that's been an environment that's been very good for gold. But over the past few months, we've seen that delta narrow and real rates are budging up. What's your outlook for, for real rates um, going forward? So a little bit less certain now because a lot of this past move, we've had we've had rising inflation expectations, but then nominal yields have risen even faster because they're catching up from such a deep drought. Uh, and so going forward, uh, you know, it, it's quite possible that that you know, uh, say rates take a break for a little bit while uh, inflation levels inch up, partially due to these base effects. Uh, and so you know, we, we've gotten pretty oversold on gold. Uh, we've seen a little bit of strength out of that recently, especially compared to what some of the real rates are still doing. And so it's kind of a transition point that I'm watching pretty closely because, you know, gold has closely tracked those real rates where, you know, back in, in, in August of last year, uh, you know, we saw, um, you know, uh, real rates bounce up from, from a, little, a little bit worse than negative 1%. They started for the 10-year, they started to uh, go up, and that's when gold sold off. We've been in this multi-month correction for gold. We've been in this multi-month, uh, you know, uh, bear market and bonds, rising uh, yields and real yields. Uh, and that's kind of getting a little bit wobbly now, I think, uh, where where yields are still, uh, I think, longer term looking up, uh, but they have come so far so fast. It has come become consensus that yields are that yields are going to rise. It's become consensus that that gold is out of favor. And so I'm I'm watching for a potential consolidation point here. Uh, and so that, that's how I'm kind of reading that space. Yeah, just to go back to those those key base effects, um, it, you're. Uh, most things are measured in year-over-year -year change. So uh, in inflation uh, for, for next month, for April, is going to be compared to April 2020, where the entire world, and especially the U.S. economy, was in a state of disaster. 20 million people had just lost their jobs. Uh, so comparing inf the inflation, the consumer price index, to that, uh, it, it will actually give a, a higher number than, than would be normal. And the, the way that I like to think about that is just a cruise liner. You know, a, a cruise liner can say, oh, um, you know, we, we, our revenue in uh, Q2 2020 was a million dollars. It was extremely low. It, you know, it plummeted 99.5%. It went from, you know, billions of dollars to just, just one um, million dollars. And then if it goes to a billion dollars again, um, you know, what, what is that? You know, a multi-thousand percent year-over-year -year increase? But it's, it's not. It's, it's, you're, you're comparing it to, you know, one of the worst times of all. So I think that uh, it's really good that you're, you're bringing, bringing up the, the base effects. But so on the one, the one end, we have CPI, and that is base effects, because that's a piece of economic data. You don't really trade that. But then on the other hand, we have the tips market, 
where which has real yields, and then we have nominal yields, and both of those are real markets. And in other words, that they're the the price is set by supply and demand. It's it's so you don't really have base effects uh, uh, there. You, you mentioned that you're a little you're unsure on real rates uh, going forward. Do you do you think that the rise in nominal rates, which of course is what everyone's talking about, do you think that that has gotten a little bit long in the tooth, or do you still think that uh, you know long run you think rates will continue to rise? I still think there's a decent chance they continue to rise, but maybe not as fast as people thought. And so uh, they, they've come so far so fast, and people are like, sure, this is going to be a wrecking ball and keep causing problems. And maybe it will, but some, once once something becomes so known, uh, that's almost when the market uh, tends to to trick you the other way. Uh, and so I, I do think they have higher to go, uh, but even when you have a, a long-term direction in mind, doesn't mean the market goes there in a straight line. And so I, you know, I, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me to see a period of consolidation. And it's funny because if you look back in history, I mean, you know, obviously the ten-year spends the majority of its time higher than official CPI uh, inflation, and yet uh, it, it's been a pretty big chunk of time here, uh, you know, below the the headline inflation numbers. Uh, and so even if you don't get significant inflation, the ten-year naturally wants to pull back up to a period of of, of uh, you know uh, positive real yields. Uh, but the challenge there is that there's so much debt in the system, whether you look at public debt. Uh, whether you look at you know the, the leverage in, in, in you know all these different you know credit markets and looking at what's happening with housing, which has really been kind of a, a driver of economic activity in, in recent quarters, uh, that a lot of that is is threatened uh, by those rising yields. And so we're going to watch basically to see the you know the reflationary effect happening, uh, but then it's going to you know run into these these higher real yields, or we're going to see how the market absorbs that. And one of the, the the tricks that the Fed still has up their sleeve that they they've they've been resistant to use yet is to suppress the long end of the curve. Uh, and so for as long as economic growth continues and nothing is, is quote unquote breaking uh, in either the plumbing system or, or credit markets or things like that, they have a decent incentive to kind of let it play out and, and see you know, if a fire develops for them, for them to uh, put it out. Yeah. Uh, uh, for, firstly, Lynn, I'm glad that you brought up housing. Uh, today, actually, there is a, a month over month uh, uh, data coming out on existing home sales in the U.S., and it was actually down 6.6%, whereas the median survey was down only 3%. So, you know, as you know, housing has been at the vanguard of the rally. So the fact it's, it's slowing down is, is you know, perhaps uh, causing people to scratch their heads. But Lynn, I'm really glad that you brought up yield curve, yield curve control because I want to get in the weeds on the different part of the curve. You know, the violence. Uh, in, the, in the yield curve started a, a few weeks ago in, in the belly of the curve, that seven-year auction. Uh, but it continued to the 10-year, the 20-year, and the 30-year, you know, obviously marked by uh, TLT, which has had a drawdown, I believe, over 20%. Um, meanwhile, on the, the extreme short end of the curve, I think you, you had a chart on Twitter, the one-month Treasury bill actually briefly uh, uh, went negative, or it was very close to going negative, just as it did um, during, during last year, during March and April. So, so my question for you, Lynn, is, uh, you know, what, what's your outlook on the different parts of the curve? Last uh, last week, we said you know Powell was very reticent to, to mention yield curve control at all. Uh, he got very many promises from journalists, and he sort of brushed it off. Essentially, evaded the question. Uh, what did you think of that? And how do you think that uh, Fed Chair Powell and the Federal Reserve will orient itself towards yield curve control uh, in the future? One way to approach it is, you know, I, I treat the short end of the Treasury curve and the long end of the Treasury curve as almost separate asset classes. Even though they're all they're all you know uh, treasuries, uh, in a minute, like they almost couldn't be more different. I mean, the types of buyers are different, the reasons to buy them are different, and so we, that's why you know simultaneously 
we've seen kind of a, you know a lack of a lack of sufficient number of T bills out there. There's basically there's you know there's this demand for collateral compared to the amount of liquidity in the system, and that's, that's driven those yields uh, super low uh, because those T bills are in, in high demand. On the other side, you know, uh, not a lot of investors have wanted to own uh, these really these really long term bonds uh, at a time when you know their their yields are below uh, you know both the Fed's intended inflation rate for the long run uh, and below uh, you know even what inflation was currently happening, especially uh, in a policy environment of such just rapid broad money supply creation. And so it's natural for those for those longer that longer term stuff to want to uh, push up and yield. While at the same time, there's a ton of demand for the, the short-term stuff. And in some ways, that was the opposite of what we saw in, in late 2019 with the repo spike, where you, know, you had too many uh, T-bills relative to uh, the available liquidity. And in this period, you're, you're finding the opposite. And so the result is we're getting a very, very steep yield curve. Uh, that's been, that's been uh, good for banks. Uh, and it's also uh, you know, been somewhat negative for, for gold, uh, because gold closely follows that, that real yield relationship. Uh, and you know uh, they, they, the Fed did throw a little bit of water on that bank trade, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, last week when they announced that they're that they're not going to extend, uh, you know, the SLR relief, and so that that took a little bit of the wind of the sails out of the banks, uh, and so that's another thing that it came very far, very fast. Something I've I've been bullish on, only started to see it go up like that consistently, uh, you know, basically that that you know slows it down a little bit, and so I think we're in an environment now. Where we we've we've gotten some of the major moves out of the way. We saw you know we saw the the tech stock outperformance. We saw this really run up. Then we then we saw that correct. We saw the run up in these value stocks. Uh, we've seen the run up in yields. Uh, and now I think the market's kind of sorting through all this, and it's less um, binary, right? So you know you had the disinflationary market close. Then you had the reflationary policy response, the reflationary opening idea. And now as you know as we're looking at actual reopening. Uh, it's kind of varied, right? So it, it's more nuanced. And so if you look at Europe, uh, they're still having vaccine issues. They're having reopening issues. Uh, you know, places like the United States are moving uh, forward quicker on that. And so it becomes a, 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 ge a geographical issue. Like, there's, you know, it's not just that the whole world's on one page. We have kind of China, uh, Europe, and the United States all on kind of different chapters of this. Uh, we also see that, you know, we, we, we're, n we're no longer, you know, it was super consensus to never touch oil. And then we, we saw a really strong move in oil. And then lately, we've been we've been pairing that a little bit, and so I think some of these really giant moves are we got that out of our system. And going forward, it's it's really about nuance. It's really about uh, you know individual stocks, individual valuations. Uh, you know, I think that that you know even though that valuation's been like a dirty word in in the past uh, couple of years, I think that's that's likely going to start coming back here, where we have to kind of look at indiv individual assets on their own merits. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, Lynn, uh, your, your sizable subscriber base knows you as someone who's very comfortable swimming in both the macro pool and the micro pool, but Perhaps some of our users at Real Vision who only know you through Real Vision think of you as a macro thinker. So I definitely want to get in, into, into the micro and the, the specific stocks you're thinking and how you're, you're orienting your own portfolio. Um, but I, I do. before we do that, Lynn, I really want to talk about the, the SLR, the decision not to, uh, to, to basically to, to let the supplementary leverage ratio or, or the exemption on that expire. 
Um, quickly, can you just tell us what is the supplementary leverage ratio and why it's so important? Uh, so that's basically a measure of, of you know, uh, how much uh, available liquidity banks have compared to their, their asset base. Uh, and so uh, basically back in, in March and April of last year, uh, you know, we had a severe dysfunction in the treasury market. And it was just a very kind of unusual time in general. And so the Federal Reserve uh, uh, suspended that rule, which basically allowed banks uh, to have more bank reserves and more treasuries than they might otherwise have. Uh, and uh, basically, they, those didn't count against that, that ratio, uh, and which makes sense because they're, they're virtually risk-free assets. Uh, and so that was a way to basically give banks more flexibility. And you know, uh, there were a bunch of write-ups on, on what that means for markets. And so, for example, JP Morgan put out a piece back then saying that essentially this allows banks to buy more treasuries, which, which then you know, the Fed can buy from them. Uh, and it, it makes QE easier, and it just kind of improves liquidity in the treasury market. Uh, and so uh, that worked out pretty well. Now, banks in some ways didn't heavily use those, uh, you know, because they know that they don't want to be caught off guard when that gets pulled away. Uh, but we did see uh, you know, some banks dip into that uh, to different degrees. And we also saw that as we neared expiration, banks are, are behaving in a somewhat uncertain way because they have to kind of start assuming that it's not going to be extended. Uh, and so overall, that can, that can potentially, uh, with, the, with the fact that that's expiring and the banks are going to go back to the previous rules, uh, that puts some limits on you know, how much bank reserves they can have, how much treasuries they can hold, uh, whether or not they can even accept deposits in some cases, or, or whether or not they're going to push some uh, you know, clients to, to using other forms of, of, of you know, kind of cash management. Uh, and so uh, that's what's, what's throwing some water on, the, on this bank stock rally, where they're, they're benefiting very significantly from uh, the increase in the in the, the deposit base, they're they're benefiting from the steepness of the yield curve. Uh, but now you know they're they're kind of being uh, put back to reality where they still have to uh, be very careful with the overall size of their balance sheet. Uh, and so overall, it shouldn't be a massive change to to banks, but it does uh, you know show that that there's some degree of normalization here. And the thing that I would really watch is that treasury market, right? because it, it basically uh, you know makes that a little bit less flexible to manage. Especially at a, if if we look later in this year when there's expected to be a lot of issuance, uh, because right now you almost have the other side of the coin where there's not a ton of issuance uh, because we're drawing down the TGA, uh, you know, the Treasury General account. Uh, whereas later this year, once that TGA uh, is drawn down, they have to go back to you know basically funding their their spending with issuance. And then the question is, what are the available buyers for them? Are yields going to be high enough to attract foreign buying again? Uh, because if, if banks can't buy a ton and domestic balance sheets only have so much capacity, uh, it becomes a question of, of who's going to finance all that treasury issuance. Thanks, Lauren. A, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's, it's my understanding that uh, the uh, excuse me, the, the um, supplementary leverage ratio is the ratio of tier one equity in the numerator. So your 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 equity, your common your common equity, your bank deposits, your other extremely safe assets, and then the de denominator is essentially your entire leverage exposure, including off balance sheets, liabilities, and, and uh, on, on balance sheets as well, of course. Um, so it's, it's my understanding that the the uh, SLR exemption, which which occurred last year, exempted treasuries from the denominator. So and reserves, uh, treasuries, treasuries and reserves. Treasury, treasury, thank you, yes, treasuries and reserves. So that allowed, as you say, banks to uh, increase their balance sheets. And as a result, uh, their balance sheets swelled up with treasuries. I've got, I've got a question for you, Lynn. What, um, what was the maturity profile on those treasuries? Were they short duration? Uh, it depends on the banks. Uh, they, they had a pretty broad uh, array of them. 
there are people that that go into the detail and look at those bank uh, you know, uh, uh, holdings more closely than I do. So I haven't closely tracked uh, the the overall duration average uh, and and if there's a big variance between banks. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So so the, there's the uh, SLR when that uh, exemption ex is expiring on on the 31st. But then there's the TGA, the Treasury General Account, and I'm really glad you brought that up, Lynn, because it's you said that the the issuance is coming down the road from the treasuries. In other words, that we haven't seen we haven't seen nothing yet so far. But it's my impression, just someone who follows the news uh, very closely, is that we have had a lot of treasury issuance. Uh, the seven year, the 62 billion dollars worth of that, the the 20 year, the 30 year. Are you saying that that basically was peanuts to what is going down the road? And and can you tie that into the TGA, please? Yeah, so there are a couple of different phases. Uh, and so in 2020, uh, you know, they, they basically issued an absolute enormous amount of treasuries, uh, just utterly unprecedented. And of course, that was to, to fund an unprecedented amount of spending. Uh, now, it wasn't as big of an issue because one is that the Federal Reserve bought a, a significant amount of treasuries, and therefore, therefore there was not a lot of treasuries for the private sector to absorb. Uh, but the, the quirk there is that they also, uh, you know, the Treasury radically uh, grew its TGA. And for people that aren't aware, basically the, the Treasury, uh, you know, holds uh, its its excess cash with the Fed. It's basically like the, the Treasury's general account. And so if they issue a lot more Treasuries, uh, you know, faster than they spend that money, it pulls up in the in the TGA. Uh, and if they spend more rapidly than they issue those bonds, they can draw down that TGA. Uh, and so in recent years, the TGA was often around three or four hundred billion dollars. Uh, but they they drew the TGA up all the way up to like 1.8 trillion. It was completely off the charts compared to all previous history, more than four times higher than than previous tops. Uh, and it was unclear, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why they were doing that. Uh, and then of course we had the the, the switch over from Mnuchin to Yellen uh, running the Treasury, and so they they revised uh, basically their their plans for the TGA. And so every quarter the Treasury tells you ahead of time what their estimated issuance is going to be. What, what they intended the TGA to look like by the end of that quarter. Uh, and so when Yellen took over, they, they revised that and basically uh, you know, uh, showed that they're going to reduce issuance compared to their previous plans, uh, which, which by extension means that they're going to draw down the TGA uh, to fund spending more quickly than, than they were previously estimating that they were going to do. Uh, and so basically 2020 was a year of, of issuing more treasuries than spending, whereas the first half of this year is a, is a, a period of spending more than you're issuing uh, because you're drawing down that TGA. Now, it, it's, it's one of those nuanced things because they are still issuing a significant amount of treasuries. Uh, it's just that spending is so much higher and therefore you're, you're drawing that down. You're not actually issuing a ton of treasuries uh, you know, compared to, to baseline. Uh, but if you look out later this year, uh, treasury uh, issuance is expected to pick up uh, because they won't be able to you know, keep drawing down that TGA. Once it's drawn down back to normal levels, they no longer have that to, to draw from. Uh, and that, of course, partially depend on uh, you know, what happens in Congress, because the Treasury can only estimate so far in advance because they don't know what spending uh, is going to occur. And so, for example, when uh, the Treasury gave those estimated numbers uh, months ago, uh, they didn't know at the time if stimulus was going to pass or not. And now, as we talk now, we don't know uh, what, what infrastructure spending might have been not passed later this year or early next year. Uh, and so, but overall, if you kind of map out what what's expected, like what what the Federal Reserve said they're going to buy, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically with their with their current asset uh, purchase plan, compared to the the issuance we can kind of uh, you know bake into the cake over the next uh, you know year or so, 
uh, there actually is going to be a, quite a bit of issuance probably later this year uh, that the market's going to have to absorb. Okay, so the drawdown in the TGA actually is is bullish uh, in in absolute terms for um, treasuries because it, it's just money sort of flowing out of the system rather than new paper having to be issued. But ultimately, the treasury is going to have to rebuild that up. And, and you're saying that uh, the, the amount of paper that has, is going to have to be issued, the supply could just you know choke the market and yields could continue to rise. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, later this year. And uh, so the, the first step you know, the next, in the next several months here is during that TGA drawdown phase. Now, there's not a huge sample size. Historically, TGA drawdowns have been somewhat uh, bearish for the dollar. Whereas uh, you know TGA increases have been have been uh, you know bullish for the dollar, and that's because essentially you know a TGA is like limbo. It's, you're pulling dollars into it, and they're not they're not doing anything. Uh, and so when you're when you're pulling dollars out of the system, uh, that tends to be dollar bullish because you know the, the remaining dollars that are in there become more scarce in a sense. Uh, whereas when you're putting dollars back into the system, uh, then you know dollars become less scarce, and they and therefore you know they 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 tend to have a more of a bearish track. That's of course not not the only variable to take into account. So on its own, a TGA drawdown should should be somewhat dollar bearish. On the other hand, the, the increase in rates we've had has been dollar bullish, uh, and the fact that that the U.S. economy is growing uh, more rapidly now than than many peer uh, countries, in part mainly because we've had some just larger fiscal stimulus, but then also because you know the potential for the vaccine uh, rollout being more successful, uh, and so the market's kind of balancing these two forces. And so, you know, for the past couple of months, we've had the rise in rates where the TGA drawdown didn't really start in earnest yet. Uh, and so it was natural that the, that the dollar bull, you know, side of that was winning uh, to a significant degree. But now that we're in the kind of the heart of the TGA drawdown, uh, it's unclear if that's going to maybe consolidate and the bear is going to take over again. Uh, and that's why currently I remain somewhat neutral. I'm watching certain certain levels overall. And, and I do think that this, that, you know, that, that, we're probably going to get a, a less sharp of an increase in the dollar than we saw, you know, maybe earlier this year. Uh, but it remains to be seen which force is going to be stronger. Right. Got it. Got it. Thanks, Lynn. And it's my understanding that, um, you, you know, for, for the past two years, you've been quite bearish on the dollar. And if you follow that correctly, that that could have been a, a rainmaker trade. You're absolutely right about that. But Lynn, it's my understanding that right now you're a little less certain. You don't really have a strong view on the dollar because of what you just said, because the, the release valve, if you will, for volatility is rates. It's, it's, not, it's not currencies, right? Exactly. So yeah, if they, if they move to suppress the, the long end of the curve, uh, then uh, that forces uh, markets to express the differences through uh, you know, currency relationships. But as long as they let yields mostly do what they want to do, it can express itself uh, through rates. And so you know, if you look at 2020, uh, you know, in many ways, the, the Fed was more dovish than other central banks in the sense that their asset purchase program was larger. Uh, you know, even though they weren't willing to go the negative interest rate route, uh, just the, the sheer amount of QE in the system and the, the sheer amount of spending uh, uh, basically made you know from a much more bearish condition for the dollar than than other developed market currencies. But so far this year, we, we've had central banks kind of respond differently to the rise in rates, and so we have we have we have. You know, uh, some like Japan and Australia that are doing that are doing explicit yield curve control. Uh, then we have others like Europe that are that are essentially doing yield curve control or yield, or yield spread uh, control without being explicit about it. But they're they're certainly talking down the long end of the curve, uh, you know, more than the Fed is. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have the Fed, which is basically saying rising yields aren't a big deal. 
uh, we're monitoring it. It's a healthy sign of, of a reflationary market. Uh, and so in some ways, it's all relative, of course, but the Fed's currently a little bit tighter uh, than some of these other uh, central banks that have been more uh, apt to, to manipulate yields. And so as long as that dynamic continues, uh, that particular variable is, is bullish for the dollar, but then it's, it's going up against this, this big TGA drawdown. And that's why at the current time, I don't really have a, a very high conviction view about the dollar as I, as I did you know, if we were having this conversation a year ago. Understood. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, really quick, before we move on to the micro, micro you mentioned the stimulus bill, uh, which has recently passed that $1.9 trillion uh, bill that's going to support uh, you know, uh, in incomes as, as well as, as businesses. And it's got a whole uh, litany of programs. You've got a chart um, which shows the, uh, well, not, the, not that so much the correlation, but it's the, uh, it's the personal income uh, spike that happened as a result of the uh, first stimulus check and then the second one. Do you expect a similar spike to happen now that these, uh, over half actually, of these third stimulus checks are, are already out? And if that spike happens, how do you expect that to manifest itself in the economy and perhaps financial markets? So I do expect that spike to happen. And also what makes this third spike interesting is that it's happening when the second spike hasn't gone away yet. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we kind of break the stimulus down into a couple major components. And so a lot of people focus on the stimulus checks because, you know, they show up a lot on some of these charts. Uh, but, you know, but actually another really big factor was all the extended unemployment benefits. And so that, that's kind of been holding uh, incomes higher than they otherwise would be in this environment. But then the real kickers are their stimulus checks because they go to people that even didn't lose their income at all, and then they just kind of get extra money on top. And so if you look at the first stimulus check, we saw this big jump in income, uh, and then we saw this kind of slow decline. That's because you know stimulus checks were rolling out pretty slowly, and we also had the the federal unemployment benefits. Uh, and by the time that was basically all used up, you know the stimulus checks were months old at that point. Uh, you know uh, federal unemployment benefits had run out. Then Congress comes in and they, they pass the second round of checks, they extend the unemployment benefits, and we saw a second spike uh, in, in income. Uh, and so now what's interesting is that this third spike is coming at a time when the second one hasn't you know, fully worn off yet. And so that kind of kicks up in, into you know, high gear at the same time as those base effects are quite favorable, those really low base effects. And so that's kind of why I think it's pretty interesting this time, because you know, as you roll into April and May, uh, you know, consumers have a ton of cash. We're potentially getting 3% headline CPI prints due to really low base effects. And so I'm kind of just curious to see how the treasury market is going to respond to this, to see if, if, they're, if they're going to agree with the narrative that is transient and kind of look out and say, okay, we can, we can absorb a couple months of, of high headline CPI because we don't think it's going to be persistent, or if the treasury market is going to be caught off guard by this and, and, and kind of have this heightened volatility, especially with the Fed kind of, you know, uh, committing not to you know, move too aggressively to control the long end of the curve. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Definitely. It, uh, it definitely is an embarrassment of riches. Lynn, um, I, I want to ask how you are positioning your portfolio. Uh, you, you mentioned you're trimming some of, some of your winners, a little bit of banks here, a little bit of energy there, some commodities, some copper. And it's my understanding that as the tech sell-off has evolved, you're viewing some uh, stocks with you know, 
uh, maybe they, they weren't attractive three months ago when you 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 could uh, you know taste the reflationary uh, wind and you, you really tell that was uh, happening. But now that rates are rising and um, you know things are changing a little bit, and there's been such a move into value into these reflationary names. It's my understanding that you're viewing some tech names uh, with a little bit of interest. Um, one stock I, I was reading your your, your premium report, uh, which came out earlier this month, was was Adobe. Uh, what can you tell me about that stock? Why why are you interested in that? Well, so one thing I find interesting is that the market has been very binary, and it's almost like you, you can you can look at the markets in, in kind of uh, you know one one second and see if this is a a value day or a growth day, right? So it's like it's either like the the Dow's down and Nasdaq's up, or like Nasdaq's down like a ton and and Dow's up, and you have these really kind of big uh, differentials. Uh, and whereas the in some ways the middle of the market has been the least exciting one, the ones that are say growth at a reasonable price. Or you know the ones that are like high quality value. It's always either the the really kind of dumpster fire names that are doing great, or the the super high growth names that are you know. So we, we've had that really kind of wide polarity. And so the the space that I've been finding some value in is that that middle of the road space. And and, and so there are some examples. Uh, basically, it's it's stuff that is not being bought by the Robinhood crowd, but at the same time is you know you know not not on the value side of the spectrum. And so, for example, Adobe is a company that's that's you know well more than three decades old. It's a very established company. Uh, you know, they we all know them, but no one's excited about them, right? They're not they're not a hot stock, and yet uh, you know they've done extremely well uh, over the past five years because they've they've shifted towards a, a SaaS model, a subscription model. Uh, therefore, they have more recurring revenue. They've actually accelerated growth because of that. They've they've made acquisitions. They diversify their product line. They've introduced AI. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've really kind of oriented themselves towards a cloud company. Uh, and so they've done it very well in that environment. And it's a stock that I've been long. Uh, you know, I originally uh, bought it back in, in January 2019 after they had that big tech sell-off in, in quarter four uh, 2018. Uh, and then it did it did so well up through mid-2020 that I was like, well, now I'm, now I'm nervous about it because the valuation went up faster than, than the underlying earnings. And so that's a stock that I trimmed. Uh, but now that it's been in a multi-month correction, uh, it's getting a little bit more interesting again, and so I've been I've been looking at layering back into it. Or another tactic I do is if I if I if I know there's a stock that's good but maybe a little bit rich, I'll say okay, here's the price I'd rather buy it at, and so I'll sell a cash secured put and say I'll get paid. Uh, you know, if it div if it doesn't go down there, I'll just I'll get paid a good premium and basically you know put put my money to use. And if if we do get kind of a a growth stock capitulation. And the stock falls another, you know, fifteen percent. I'll go ahead and scoop that up and be long from that from that cost basis. And it's just kind of like, you know, sort of a win-win as long as the underlying, uh, you know, company fundamentals and overall valuation model are reasonably correct. Uh, and so that's an approach I've been doing with some of these uh, companies. I've also been long Facebook, for example, which no one's excited about. Uh, you know, it's, it's every time it's in the headline, it's generally not for great great uh, reasons. Uh, and so, uh, same thing with, with some of the Chinese tech, where I've been, I've been saying, okay, a handful of these sort of companies have not done very well, uh, but they're actually, you know, kind of appropriately valued compared to their, you know, forward expected growth rates. And so, I, I've been doing the thing where I don't bet too heavily on one name, uh, but I do pick up these little, uh, you know, kind of uh, somewhat oversold growth names. That's really interesting. Yeah, I definitely think of Adobe as a stock that has staying power, as a product that has staying power. Um, I'm pretty sure that the this episode that we're we're filming right now will probably be cut uh, on Adobe Premiere Pro. And and when I say staying power, you know, 
thinking of uh, Warren Buffett and those moats of, let's say you buy a, a, co a can of Coca-Cola for a dollar, you're not going to buy a competing can of another um, uh, cola for 98 cents just because you save two cents. It's like, no, you, you want Coca-Cola. And likewise, I'm thinking you know, a, a lot of um, trained professionals who work in the, the film industry, as well as you know, amateurs who are, who are interested in this as well, they, if they have a certain skill set on Adobe, they're, they're progressing on the Adobe scale. They don't, they don't want to uh, necessarily learn something new. So that's a really interesting, um, really interesting trade, Lynn, and, it, and good to get you talking on, on the micro. Um, Lynn, as we reach a close, my final question for you is the following. I know you've been very bullish on, on Bitcoin, and I, uh, you know, that, that trade has obviously worked out phenomenally. I, I, I also know that you're, you, remain, um, you're, you remain bullish on it, but um, you know, you're, not, you're not sort of pounding the table for it, but, but you remain bullish on it. So I don't want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which have been on an absolute tear. And I actually don't know if I've um, seen you on Twitter or, or heard you anywhere else um, share your views on them. You know, we recently had a, a work of art uh, from Beeple go go pub, uh, not go public. What am I saying? Um, uh, be sold for sixty nine million dollars. Now, after that sale was completed, I believe Beeple said it's a bubble. It's interesting that they didn't say it's a bubble before it was sold. But um, you know, you have Tony Hawk uh, having an NFT, and it kind of reminds me of the SPACs, where it's like, oh yeah, Shaquille O'Neal has a SPAC. Paul Ryan has a SPAC. A-Rod has a SPAC. You know, what's your take, uh, Lynn, on, on these NFTs? So I, th I think the NFTs is where a lot of the excess uh, in the crypto space has happened in recent months. And so a lot of people refer to Bitcoin as a bubble, uh, but I don't really view that, that space as a bubble at the current time. A lot of those people are dollar-cost averaging in. They have really long-term views, uh, whereas the, the mania has really been in the NFT space, in my opinion. Uh, and so on one hand, it's, it's interesting technology because you know, for people that, that have collectibles, you know, sometimes they do have silly prices, and that, that's part of being a collectible. And so, for example, I, I, the example I use is that I, I have Magic the Gathering cards, and some of them are, are silly in price compared to the cardboard that they're printed on. Uh, and that's because there's, there's utility to them in the game, or some, some of the really old ones they have, they have uh, you know, value because they're not being made any more of, uh, and so there's only a finite amount. Uh, and so collectibles, of course, you know, are, are going to have value as long as whatever made them a collectible in the first place stays relevant. Uh, now the question is, you know, NFTs are kind of a unique expression of that, and so it makes sense on one hand that as we've digitized our world, that we, we would have digitized collectibles. Uh, now, the, I think the the thing to watch out for is some of the the details, and so on one hand, it, it enables a lot of things. And so, for example, I'm always in favor of technologies that that give the the artist or the creator, whether it's whether it's music or or visual or all these different mediums more control over their product, a, a larger share of the, the income they can get from it, basically factoring out the middleman, giving them different tools to go straight to the public. So I'm always in favor of that. There's also unique things where, you know, let's say a, an artist uh, uh, sells a piece of art, they get, they get a small amount for it, and then if it later sells for a different amount, uh, that doesn't affect them. Whereas with, with NFTs, you can do all sorts of interesting programming things, like you, you can get a recurring uh, stream from, from later sales and things like that. So I definitely think it's an area that's really worth exploring and, and seeing what, what's going to become of it. But of course, as you explore these things, market's kind of prone to excesses. Uh, and so, you know, we, we saw back in 2017 the ICO uh, bubble where everything had to be an ICO, and so now everything's got to be an NFT. Uh, and so, I think the risk is that oh, so even even some aspects of this technology have staying power. That doesn't necessarily mean that like a, a little 8-bit GIF, uh, you know, a little bit 8-bit picture is going to be worth the million dollars, you know, five years from now that it was paid for 
you know, this this at this point. And so I do think that that you know the vast majority probably won't won't hold their value. There's also kind of details that I've that I've compared before. Whereas, if you look at a traditional piece of artwork, uh, you know, partly it's the is the you know the artist himself. Uh, but you know, a lot of times the artist does not you know their works don't become expensive until after the artist passes away, because in, in some ways that's when they've they've proven the scarcity of of their of their pieces of art. They can no longer paint the same picture again. There's, they know how many pictures, you know, roughly and there could be hidden works, you know, found. But overall, that's when those when those artists, you know, uh, and sadly become rich is after they're they're no longer benefiting from it. And so one of the downsides of NFTs is that you know you don't know how many artworks the the living author is going to create. You don't. There's no. You know, they could potentially reissue the same artwork on on another blockchain. Uh, you know, they basically could violate trust of of the user. You're also basically betting on the longevity of the underlying blockchain. And so, for example, you can say there's a Picasso, but it was it was it was made in a certain type of paint or that is disintegrating faster than you know people thought at the time. And so, therefore, an otherwise good piece of work could be you know made worthless by the fact that it disintegrates more quickly than expected. Similarly, if you're if you're buying an NFT, you're basically betting on the longevity of the underlying blockchain in a similar way that you're betting on the longevity of the paints and the canvas of a of a of a piece of art. And so, overall, I think it, it's an area that's fraught with risk and speculation. And so I would kind of, you know, just encourage people to be very selective in how much capital they put into that and to be really kind of tame with their expectations where it's, I think it's a, it's a fun place to dabble in, but I'd be very cautious about, you know, serious capital investments. Wise words. And, you know, Lynn, what you said about the, uh, what blockchain it's on, I, I believe most of them are on Ethereum. It's my understanding that you are uh, um, pr pronouncedly uh, more, way more bullish on Bitcoin than you are on Ethereum. You know, people who are Ethereum say, oh, well, you, you can do all these smart contracts. It's not like Bitcoin, where Bitcoin, you can kind of just send it to people and that that's really it. Um, Lynn, to just do a little bit of a plug, it's, it's my understanding that this week uh, for the Real Vision crypto gathering, you are actually speaking to Elizabeth Stark, the CEO and founder of the Lightning Network, who is, uh, with the Lightning Network, the goal of that is basically to uh, conduct be an application layer on top of, of Bitcoin. Uh, do you want to quickly talk about that? Sure, yeah. She's the CEO of Lightning Labs, which is they make some of the tools for the Lightning Network. And so the Lightning Network is like Bitcoin, where it's not owned by anyone, uh, but there are companies that make tools for it or that make different sort of protocols. And so whenever you hear about a really cool app that's out there that's using Lightning, uh, chances are they're a customer of Lightning Labs that is, that is kind of doing the underlying technology that makes a lot of that po uh, possible. So that, so that there's basically easier ways and more liquid ways uh, to interact with the Lightning, uh, you know, network. Uh, and so, uh, basically, as, as Bitcoin continues to grow, Lightning is is the scaling network on top of that, and allows all sorts of things, like from you know, uh, you know, you can think of like the Strike app, for example, that, that allows for kind of international payments very cheaply. Uh, there's also things like Sphinx Chat, where you know you're basically uh, you know using Lightning as a as a form of communication. Uh, and so, it's really kind of exciting technologies that can kind of upend. Uh, some of the, the legacy systems we have now, uh, and, and it can even you know uh, utilize smart contracts. Essentially, I mean, you know, at its core, Lightning is essentially a smart contract uh, layer, uh, and so you know, it kind of it's a, just an interesting thing that makes Bitcoin more than just digital gold. It makes it potentially a, a payment network, uh, but then also allows for uh, you know smaller investors to get around the problematic transaction fees that can happen if if, if Bitcoin is very successful. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. I'll leave a link in the description uh, so people can sign up to the Crypto Gathering if they haven't uh, already. Lynn, as always, it's been phenomenal.
having you on the Daily Briefing. Thanks so much. Uh, people can find you at lynnalden.com as well as on your Twitter handle at Lynn, uh, excuse me, at Lynn Alden Contact. Uh, Lynn, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.